0: guys, we're finally back with part two of our series of responses to Leighton Flowers. very long response to Tyler Bella and I's episode that we did back around Christmas time where we went through the Provisionist Statement of Faith and asked some very basic questions. What I want you to ask yourself as we, we go through this episode is, are our questions actually answered or not? I think you'll notice there's a lot of deflection, accusations of straw man, misrepresentation, but the concepts are not actually addressed. Um, The the main concept in this episode is going to be the fallen nature of man, and what you'll notice is provisionism wants to affirm that, yeah, our nature is corrupt and we're born with a a sinful nature, but when asked what that means in light of the fact that they think we're born innocent, you're never going to get, at least in this response from Leighton, an explanation or reconciliation of those apparently contradictory statements. So we're going to jump right in here. I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys to decide whether or not our questions are actually answered, And I just want to also apologize for the background noise. I had to put in a uh, portable AC unit because I live in Southern California and it's been well over 100 degrees lately. So that is a mandatory thing. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump back into this response.
1: And so sin is is the, the, the initial condition, it's a pervasive problem. That, uh, that 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 all people are um, are dead in sin. We, we have, and that sin means we have no hope. We have no ability. We have we, you know we have no ability for righteousness. We we are dead. We have a deadened heart. Right. All, I mean, all of that biblical language around it.
0: Now, this is extremely important. This is an extremely important point. Okay, when we're going to talk about spiritual deadness or a, uh, being dead in sin, um, we can't use this idea of deadness and just assume that the meaning in one context is going to be interchangeable with the meaning in other contexts. As Layton is about to quote a, um, a couple verses. That will demonstrate this point very quickly when calvinists like tyler and myself when we talk about spiritual deadness okay you can't get that confused with the idea of physical deadness okay you can't go well if i'm physically dead that means i have no physical activity therefore to be spiritually dead means i have no spiritual activity okay that's not what's being said when you're talking about the spiritual aspect of things you've flipped over into the moral realm okay So obviously, spiritually dead people are still very spiritually active. It's just that it's all bad stuff. It's spiritually sinful things, right? Even Satan and the demons could be described as very spiritually active. It's just all bad stuff. And so this is why a Calvinist would say that logically prior to a spiritually dead heart doing anything that is spiritually good, they must be raised to spiritual life. Now, there's a very specific context to that idea of life. We're talking about the heart, okay? But we use that that idea to to reference regeneration. Now, what people falsely do, as Leighton's about to do, is they understand the idea of a heart being made alive to be identical to us being made, quote-unquote, alive in Christ or receiving eternal life. They think that is a, a direct, swappable concept. And, you know... I suppose I need to do an entire episode on the idea of regeneration preceding faith. It is a very logical concept that has its grounding in scripture. There's no doubt. There are plenty of verses that suggest, from all sorts of different angles, that doing spiritually good things, doing things that please God, loving God, working righteousness, all of these things require someone to be born of God, to have been regenerated, to be according to the Spirit. All those verses are there. All we're saying is that there is a logical order to the occurrence of what is going on. And this is important because nobody is going to say, from either side, that there is a temporal um, time lapse between these particular events. So a Calvinist would say, as soon as you are born again, you are regenerated, you are believing. There is, it's not like five seconds later or five days later. As soon as you are regenerated, as soon as your heart is changed, the nature of a changed heart a living heart, is to believe. And likewise, the other side, even though they're saying that faith is preceding regeneration, they would not say that somebody believes and then five days later is regenerated. They would say as soon as someone believes, they are regenerated. So this is a strictly logical order that we're all talking about. And all the Calvinist is saying is that based upon the enormous amount of verses that seem to suggest that you must be regenerated before spiritually good activity can take place, such as repentance, humbling yourself, loving God, believing the gospel, anything that's going to please God, the Bible says you must be according to the spirit. You must be born of God. So you're about to hear Leighton here, quote a couple of verses that say we need to come to Christ to be, to have life in him. It's like, yeah, everybody can say that, right? Because that is referring to eternal life in general, being made alive in Christ. That also happens instantaneously with these two other things, faith and regeneration. So the Calvinist simply puts a logical order to it and says that it's regeneration, faith, and eternal life. And this should seem fairly obvious that you cannot conflate regeneration with eternal life, right? They happen at the same time and they are directly related, but nobody's going to deny that regeneration is a single act of God. It is a starting point of God and it must, you know, regeneration must precede the, the, the overall idea of eternal life in general. Okay. So there is a proper order here. And there is no problem when leighton flowers quotes verse verses like he's about to quote
2: right so we take a very strong what what do dead men need they need new life and what does the bible say you do to get new life you've refused to come to me jesus said so that you may have life so what does jesus think they need to do to get new life come to him
0: right and nobody disagrees with that okay Calvinists can just as easily say that in order for people to have life they need to come to christ and believe in him it's just that we recognize that the ultimate reason that a fallen heart a spiritually dead sinful Heart that loves its sin and hates God. The ultimate reason a sinful heart would ever come to Christ in the first place is because that heart, that heart is renewed by a gracious act of God. God changes the heart and the automatic result is faith in Christ. The instantaneous automatic result is faith in Christ and eternal life, right? It's all one package that happens at the same instant. And yet we're simply recognizing the proper logical order to what is going on. I like the way Arthur W. Pink compares it to the miracle of Jesus healing a blind person. You'll notice that a blind eye needs to be healed in order for it to see, and yet nobody's going to say that there is a time lapse between being healed and seeing, right? As soon as the eye is healed, it sees. It's the automatic result. And so likewise, the automatic result of a regenerated, renewed heart is to believe in Christ. Okay, it's logically impossible to have a regenerated heart that is not believing in Christ, okay? That's the point here. And so this is important because, you know, Calvinists do have verses that we would say t- teach that regeneration, spiritual life must precede logically, again, not temporally but logically precede the actions of 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 being spiritually alive, right? Obviously, faith in God is a spiritually good action, therefore logically requires spiritual life, repenting of sins, right? Hating, starting to hate your sin and and love the things of God, anything that is spiritually good or pleasing to God. The Bible insists that we must, that we can only be doing these things by the spirit of God, right? We're going to get into Romans eight in a little bit here, but Romans eight says that no one who is according to the flesh submits to God's law, nor does anything that pleases him. And yet you know that you're not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you, right? So the spirit of God must dwell in you in order for you to be according to the spirit. We have 1 John 5.1. This is the verse that I think most clearly teaches the idea that, logically speaking, being born of God must precede faith. 1 John 5.1 says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, past tense, born of God. So everyone who believes has been born of God already been born of God. If you look at the tenses of the of the Greek terms there, and remember, even your first moment of belief, even your first nanosecond of belief, places you into the category of everyone who believes. And this verse says that everyone who believes has already been born of God. This is the quote-unquote life that the Calvinist is referring to, okay? Not just eternal life in general, which is obviously in Jesus Christ, but being born of God, right? Being made spiritually alive. And once again, there is no temporal uh, separation between regeneration or belief or being made alive in Christ, okay? There's a couple other verses that, that hint at this logical order, this necess- logically necessary order. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we see that no one can say that Jesus is Lord, obviously referring to true faith, except by the Holy Spirit, okay? This Holy Spirit must be dwelling in you in order for you to truly recognize that Jesus is Lord, to have true, have true faith, right? And in Romans 8:15, it says that we've received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, right? By the spirit, we do these things, these spiritually good things, like believing, like saying Jesus is Lord, right? Requires the spirit of God. So the reason I take the time to go through these verses is just to distinguish between Calvinists' specific context of being made alive in the heart, raised to spiritual life, being born of God, and the general idea of being alive in Christ, which Leighton here is trying to um, put forth as some sort of contradiction to that concept.
2: Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood so that you may live, that you may have life. There's always the responsibility of man to come so as to get life. So we're not denying that men are dead apart from God. They are outside the garden. They're cast out. They are dead. What do they need? They need new life. And how do they get it according to scripture? They're just unilaterally given to them for no apparent reason? No, they come to Jesus, the life giver
0: right and again as a calvinist i could say that but what you're not addressing is the ultimate reason behind why anybody would why does a fallen sinner ever want to come to god and have new life in the first place and this is where leighton is always going to assume libertarian free will and set man up as the ultimate reason behind why anyone does those things and as i've continuously pointed out you have to go to the verses of scripture that actually address why people do that I just listed off a few, right? It is by the Holy Spirit that anybody does any of these things, right? We all know the verse in Ezekiel that talks about God putting, um, giving us a new heart, putting his spirit within us, causing us to walk in his ways, to be careful to obey all his rules, right? Leighton likes to list off all, all the verses that talk about how man, man's quote-unquote responsibility, right? They need to humble themselves. They need to believe. They need to repent of their sins. All these, all these things that anybody agrees with, everybody agrees with. But we are asking the specific question, why a fallen sinner would ever want to do those things in the first place? And the Bible's answer is always God. God's grace, God's power, God's action. And we'll see this more c- coming about in Romans 8 specifically, one of the, the best chapters addressing this issue.
2: They believe in truth. Truth will set you free. So how does a man who's enslaved get set free? He believes the truth of God. He trusts in the truth that God brings him.
0: And I, I just have to ask Leighton, do you think that, that these actions, belief, repentance, humbling yourself, are these spiritually good actions or not? The obvious answer is that yes, they are. And if they are, then what you're saying here, and this is getting really down to the, the whole point of the issue of what Tyler and I were talking about, the fault, what is the state, the condition of man? If you're saying that those things, if you're admitting, I should say, the obvious fact that those are spiritually good things then what you're saying is that fallen sinners can, in and of themselves, right? I know you think God makes it possible, that's fine. But, but at the end of the day, they are the ultimate reason behind their own doing of spiritually good things. Because in your view so far in the equation, the spirit is just only come externally, right? Sort of a little bit of conviction on the heart with the, the, the bringing of the gospel, perhaps. But you have not yet admitted to God changing their heart because in your view, the change of man's heart by God comes after they believe and after they humble themselves and after even possibly they repent of sins. After man does these spiritually good things, then God responds by changing the heart. But this brings up a question which I'm about to ask, I think, later on in this, uh, this particular episode that Tyler and I did that we're going through. What is the point of regeneration if fallen man in and of themselves can already do all these spiritually good things? The Bible seems to say that you need spiritual life to do these spiritually good things. You're saying that spiritually dead people can do these spiritually good things already. And therefore, what's the point of spiritual life exactly? Obviously, it's so they can be saved, made alive in Christ, and have eternal life. But we're asking the specific question is, what is the point of regeneration in your view as it pertains to the fallen condition of man? You got to remember, we quoted 1 John 5, 1 earlier. That says that everyone who believes has been past tense born of God. The same book in, in other places, I can't remember the exact exact references, but it mentions other, you know, spiritually good things um, performed by people who are already born of God. It says that whoever loves has been born of God, right? Obviously talking about true love, something that pleases God. Anyone who does that has been born of God already, according to the tenses of the verbs. And yet people like Leighton would have you believe that someone who has not yet been born of God is perfectly capable of loving God. And First John also says that anyone who works righteousness, anyone who does what is good, has been born of God. right? So the book of First John consistently puts forth the results of regeneration, the results of being born of God, the results of the change of the heart, right? And again, if the unchanged heart can already do all those things, then what's the point of the change in heart? I mean, it's very easy to see the book of First John putting forth these things as evidences of that the very idea of being born of God. These are evidences. How do you know somebody has been born of God? The entire book addresses that. And yet if the fallen person, the fallen heart, the un, the heart that is not yet born of God can already do these things, then they're not really evidences, are they? How can you point at belief that Jesus is the Christ, loving working righteousness so on and so forth how can you point to those things as evidences of being born of god if you believe that fallen man is fully capable of doing each and every single one of those things prior to regeneration right it just doesn't make any
1: sense you kind of just like offended the, the party host uh, yeah it's like um it's like
0: you messed up and you've been kicked out of the cool kids club and you need to do better uh, to, to get back in rather than understanding that you
2: willingly separated yourself from god uh, notice what it says you willingly separated yourself from god as if you had any control of your willingness to separate yourself from God.
0: And here's latent conflating ultimate control with storyline level control, right? I can't tell you how many times I've argued with people over the fact that you can have control over things in creation, even, even your, your, yourself, your own actions. You have, you have precisely the control that God has determined that you have. So if I pick up an object and I wave it around, I, I now have control over that object, right? I am in control of that object. But how does that in any way mean that God is not in control of my control? See, a lot of people see that, that idea as a contradiction because they have assumed that it's an either or. And what I have continuously put forth in all, almost all of my episodes is the fact that it is both, right? God is in ultimate control of your storyline level control. God's power is intimately involved in your existence at all moments. God is causing your existence moment by moment by moment, and therefore he is in control of his own power, ultimately, which is in control of your existence and your control, right? So when we talk about man's control, we're simply addressing the relationship that man has to something else in creation, right? Or in the case of moral actions, the control that you have over various aspects of yourself, right? But none of that is a contradiction to saying that God is in control of all of that. God is in control of of your control. And this, this concept, this both and idea with one being ultimate concept can be applied to every single category that we would talk about, right? God can choose what you will choose. God can determine your determinations. God is in control of your control because you are not an ultimate being. Only God is.
2: Do do you see the problem here? Colin, you believe that you willingly separated yourself from God and every lost person willingly separated themselves from God.
0: That's absolutely correct.
2: Because God willed them to.
0: Yes, that's correct. Ultimately, God willed them to will what they will. And it's not a contradiction. Um, I, you know, I've, I've covered, the as I said, this concept in, in, in multiple episodes. Don't have time to get into it here, but it's very simple. If you recognize, as a Christian, God's transcendent creator-sustainer relationship to, cre- uh, to his creation, and you don't conflate that with what is occurring on the storyline level, then there is no contradiction. Okay, any control that you have ever had over anything was also ultimately controlled by God, and if you deny that, then you have set yourself up as an ultimate power in this in this universe, and the logical end of that road is some form of semi-idealism or dualism where you have disconnected yourself from the power of God and you are your own autonomous ultimate power. And again, verses like Hebrews 1.3, God upholds the universe by the word of his power, which is always true. Colossians 1.17, In God all things consist. In God you live and move and have your being. There is never one nanosecond of your existence when you are not under the power and control of God. So it's not a contradiction to say that I will whatever God wills me to will because he is the ultimate being. And never forget, as I always point out, I know I beat this drum to death, but everyone has God, quote unquote, willing what we will. Everyone has God determining what we determine. Everyone has God choosing what we will choose. God willed to create us in the ways that he did. He chose and determined to create us in the ways that he did. He could have stopped or changed course of whatever we willed or determined or chose at any time. He could have changed the course or even stopped it, right? Right. And, and when you zoom in to the micro level, God even willed to cause and sustain our existence even as we willed what we willed and determined what we determined and chose what we chose, right? God's will and determination and choice is involved in all of these things. And there is no angle by which you can escape this reality.
2: By his sovereign will. And yet you're trying to defend that men are bl- more blameworthy on your view than our view?
0: And again, covered that in the last episode. Nobody's talking about being more or less blameworthy, okay? You brought that up because it's a common talking point of yours. You think that in Calvinism, man has an excuse, and so they're more blameworthy in your view. I think they're equally blameworthy in either view. What we're talking about is the seriousness of sin, right? How serious of a condition has it placed man in? And as we continue to demonstrate, as we just talked about, you believe spiritually dead people can already do lots of spiritually good things, your view of sin as a concept and a condition is far less, not less blameworthy, but just a weaker view of sin in general. As a sinner, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, not even separate. I mean, I would just say that the separation from God language, while well, it's meaningful, I mean, it's, it is, you know, you are downright enemies of God, right? You are, you, you know, well, not you, but, you know, those, apart from Christ, you. Uh, we, we.
0: And this is really important. Um, you know, I very rarely, if ever, I, I don't want to say, you know, off the top of my head, I've never heard Leighton address the fallen sinful state of man as enemies of God. Now, he probably has because it's biblical language. But think about that as a concept and how important it is to this critical discussion of the fallen state of man. Do you believe that fallen sinners are enemies of God? Or do you believe, as Latent so commonly portrays them, as victims of their own past actions and they're just poor slaves of sin in bondage and they really want to be made better and they just need God's help to do it? Versus a view of sin like Tyler and Ice, which says that man is in bondage to sin precisely because they love their sin. They are in bondage to sin precisely because it is a moral bondage resulting from moral desires and dispositions, right? They hate God. They love their sin. Enemies of righteousness, allies to unrighteousness. You have to understand how critical that is when we talk about the fallen condition of man. And why that view, a view which has man being enemies of God and in bondage because of their own willful choices, is a far more serious view of sin and the fallen condition of man than a view which just has poor man in bondage because of some past mistakes, quote-unquote. And yet in in that state of bondage, they can want to be set free, do all these spiritually good things like humble themselves and repent and believe, there's all the difference in the world between those two views.
1: We are, yep. uh, you know, we, we are damnable wretches. We are, we are dead in our sin. We love, love our sin and we downright hate God apart from Christ. Right? If it was not. Why?
2: Why are, do we hate God? Because God created us to hate him.
0: Again, he's flipping it back on Calvinism, not really answering the questions or addressing it from his point of view, which would have been nice to get a little more of. But again, he's just making the, if God determined that that's the only reason it's happening, error, Right. He asked the why question, why do we hate God? And then he says, well, because God. And as you know, I covered, all, I covered that entire concept in the past episode and showed how anybody, any theist is stuck with the idea of God being the ultimate reason behind why things are occurring, but that does not allow you or permit you to ignore the storyline level reasons behind why things are occurring, right? So we hate God because we are sinners who love our sin. That is a storyline level reality that is not nullified or negated by God's ultimate control of it.
2: He created the fall to make it so that everybody born since the fall would be born hating the things of God and they cannot do otherwise.
0: Ultimately, otherwise, that's correct.
2: Just come right out and say it that clearly and then people can go, oh, okay, let's see if that conforms with the scriptures.
0: You believe that God created people in such a way that they would only ever hate him and end up in hell and he could have created them differently or not at all, but he chose to create specific people in specific ways, knowing the results. Why don't you just come out and say that, Leighton? Are you trying to... You're always accusing us, why don't we just come out and say what Calvinism really teaches and stop trying to hide things from people and make it more palatable? This same type of argumentation can be flipped back on you. And the reason is that, once again, you are asking questions and making arguments that are applicable to any Christian, any theist in general. And it's just that we've got the answers. We man up and address them, whereas you think that you don't even, need, that you don't even have to address them. But I, just, I have to keep coming back to this idea of the critical understanding of the fallen state of man and how important it is. And, and I would ask Leighton, you know, do you actually believe that, that a person's hatred of God prevents them from coming to him? Is that, is that, does that even exist in your view? Do you believe that the fallen sinner's love of their own sin prevents them on a moral level, prevents them from turning away from that sin and turning towards God? The answer is no, you don't. Because you don't have a doctrine of moral inability at all. You use the word, you throw it around because Calvinists used the, the word, but your worldview does not have a concept of moral inability at all. Your idea of, of being dead in sin or, or in bondage to sin is not of a moral nature. It is not the result of man's desire for that sin. Instead, it is the result of past actions which have placed man into an unfortunate situation where they can actually desire to not be in bondage while they're still in bondage, and so they need God's help to fulfill their desire to not be in bondage anymore. As I pointed out in the last episode, that is unbiblical, the biblical concept is that man is in bondage precisely because they want to be. They love their sin and they hate God. And in order to be freed from that bondage, their heart needs to be changed. The, the reasons behind that bondage, which is in the heart, needs to be changed by God. That is how they are freed from that bondage. And this is once again the result of conflating the idea of physical bondage, which you can be in physical bondage, you can be a physical slave whether or not you want to be, right, against your will. Leighton takes that concept and just transfers it over into the idea of, into the idea of being in bondage to sin. He thinks that man is in bondage to sin, whether or not they want to be, right? And and he keeps saying, well, d- where does that actually uh, c- conform with Scripture? I would like to know where Scripture ever portrays man as a poor, helpless, you know, drug addict, as you often say, who needs God to help them uh, turn their life around. That's that's not what the Bible portrays at all. The Bible portrays man as being in bondage because of their own desires and their own love for their own sin. And God has to come along and as we have said, act first, not externally or in general, but act first on the heart of the person so that man will then want to desire God in the first place.
2: And so when he says all of these things about how we're enemies, again, the word enemy doesn't connote inability. I can say I'm an enemy with my neighbor. That doesn't mean that my neighbor and I can't be reconciled because the the term enemy or being enslaved or being in bondage or being dead, none of those words connote Inability to do otherwise, inability to respond to life-giving truth, inability to to come when offered reconciliation, Um,
0: and that is absolutely false. Romans eight says precisely that. Romans eight seven says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Right? It is. Some translations say it is at enmity with God, enemies of God. There's that word that you said has nothing to do with inability, and yet Paul says in the in the very next statement. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay? And so again, this is Leighton's error of not understanding that we're talking in the moral realm. Okay? The mind that is set on the flesh, being hostile to God or at enmity with God, cannot submit to God's law. And the next verse says cannot please God. That means anything that is spiritually good and pleasing to God cannot be done by the fallen sinful heart or mind. So enmity towards God most certainly does connote moral inability. You have it right here in Romans 8. And we can relate to this on a, on a day-to-day level. How many of us would admit that at certain points in our life, we could say because of because we hated somebody, we could not forgive them. Now, that might not have lasted very long, hopefully. But while we hated them, we could not forgive them. We would actually use that word could not, Right. How many of you would say because of the love that you have for your children, you cannot harm them? That's a moral inability, right? Resulting from the disposition, disposition of love. How many times have we said because of our disposition of disgust toward a particular food, I can't eat that, right? Doesn't mean you can't put it in your mouth and actually physically eat it. What it means is you are morally unable to eat that because you are disgusted by it because of the disposition that you have. The list goes on and on. Now, Leighton would be very quick to point out that these sorts of dispositions that we all experience on a regular basis do, in fact, change over time. And he's right. I have no problem admitting that our dispositions change. Our dispositions towards people, towards things, change over time. But, as I pointed out in past episodes, they change for determinative reasons. There is always a reason behind why your disposition towards a particular thing changed. You didn't just wake up in the, mid- you know, in the middle of the night and out of, out of the blue... Decide i'm going to change my disposition towards this thing or that person There's always something that moves you to to do that to change your disposition now for these things I just listed off that are common to all of us and our human experience, right? They change for non-supernatural reasons, but there's still reasons What I would say however is that the disposition of the fallen sinner towards god needs a supernatural work of god in order for it to change it will not change for non-supernatural reasons So enmity towards God, being in the moral category, most certainly does, word for word here in Romans 8, result in an inability to please God and submit to his law. And what does the very next verse 9 say? You, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? So how do you become according to the spirit? You don't just wake up one morning and use your free will to decide, you know what? I'm going to set my mind on the things of the spirit today. That's what Leighton would have you believe. The Bible tells you it is by the Spirit of God. Again, the logical order. Spirit of God is working in a person and resulting in these spiritually good things and these things that please God.
2: That's why why the gospel is said to be the power of God into salvation. It's calling dead men to new life. It's calling enslaved men to be reconciled, uh, to be set free.
0: And again, Leighton, why would a fallen sinner who hates God and loves their sin ever want to be set free? Why would they ever want to turn away from their sin that they love so much? What is it that occurs in their heart that makes that change in desires and dispositions? According to you, the person changes their own heart. According to the Calvinist, God changes their heart. There's all the difference in the world there.
2: And so when you use these verbs or these descriptions of being dead and enslaved and enemies, and you're just assuming they all therefore mean inability to respond to God's message sent to dead, enslaved, lost, depraved sinners.
0: Again, not assuming it. I just r- showed you the verses in Romans 8 that literally say that, right? En- enemies of God, the mind that is set on the flesh, is enmity towards God, and it cannot submit to his law, nor can it please him. Right? That is the concept of moral inability that, that we're talking about. We don't just make it up, right? Because it's convenient for our view. It is biblical.
2: Then you have to bring a little bit more meat to the table to be able to explain that the thing that God brings to dead, wretched sinners is insufficient. And I don't think you have uh, a good proof text for that.
1: Not for Christ and the Holy Spirit working in me, working in you, working in, in Leighton. Uh, we, we would all just downright hate God, um, right. even, even if we had an outward religiosity.
2: And see,
0: That's, again, a critical point. Apart from the work of God on the fallen heart, what does the fallen heart do willingly and wantingly by nature? It hates God. It loves itself and it hates God. And I've never heard Leighton speak that way of the fallen, the fallen heart of man. It is always this victim, poor sinner in bondage because of his past mistakes can somehow want to escape that bondage, but just needs God's help view, which is so clearly a much weaker view of sin and the fallen state of man.
1: Um, We we would, we would severely, we would severely hate God in in, in very perverted ways. Why?
0: See, and he's going to flip it again. Why? Oh, because God, blah, blah, blah. So far, we, we haven't heard whether or not Leighton is agreeing with these simple concepts. And, and, and I think the answer is he doesn't. He This is not Leighton's view of the fallen state of man. That they hate God. That they love their own sin. And that it is that those very dispositions, love of themselves and hatred of God, which morally prevents them from ever wanting to come to God, ever wanting to repent of their sins, ever wanting to humble themselves, ever wanting to believe the gospel, and therefore requires supernatural work of God on the heart. Leighton rejects that. And so, instead of explaining his view more clearly, right? which is what Tyler and I are really seeking here. We have we were asking simple questions, and, and Leighton would rather just keep flipping this all back on Calvinism.
2: Because God decreed us to from birth. He created us to be God-haters from birth as a punishment of Adam's sin, which Adam also was decreed to do.
0: Correct. And we, we covered all that in almost every episode I've ever done. God has a purpose in everything that occurs.
2: Some of the acronyms
0: again, but then some of the articles of the faith below. And, um... Well, one of the questions I had for you was I want to get a more clear understanding of whether or not they actually believe
2: that they are sort of inherently good. Um, I'd like... Article 2... Okay.
0: Now listen to this. This is important.
2: Do I ever say that we're inherently good? Have I ever taught that? Does Eric Hankins teach that in the statement? Or does he believe that? No.
0: Okay. Let's check out the statement of faith. And as I said in the last episode, you don't have to use the word-for-word phrase we think that man is born good to be putting forth, conceptually, that very concept. So in Article 2 in The Sinfulness of Man, they say that we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any man's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. So, according to their statement of faith, you're born innocent. Now, you'll have to excuse me for thinking that that means you're born good. I'm very sorry for for assuming that. But that's an identical concept in my mind. So now, Leighton, it's up to you to sort out this vagueness, right, in your view and in your statement of faith and in the way you phrase things and explain to us how you can be born innocent, but also not good. That's on you to explain, right? And you'll have to excuse me very much for reading this, that you're born innocent and understanding that to mean that you're born good
2: because inherently good would mean that you're righteous in and of yourself and we don't believe that you're righteous in and of yourself we believe that men are fallen they're corrupt
0: See, and he wants to use the bi- that biblical language but what does that mean he's not going to explain what that actually means so you're born innocent but you're not righteous are you unrighteous if you're not righteous you're unrighteous right but how can you be unrighteous unless you've sinned but in their view when you're born you haven't sinned yet you're innocent but you're also not righteous are you really surprised that people like me get confused by those statements?
2: That is, what, we, what we're denying is that they're therefore unable to respond positively.
0: See, and now he's on to the after the fact, right? I want to know this initial condition of man. How can you say you're born innocent, but you're not good? How can you say that you're born corrupt, right? Corrupt would mean bad, I would assume, unrighteous, but you're born also innocent. How do you square those two things? You say it, but you don't justify it. You don't explain it. This is the vagueness of provisionism that I am referring to in this, in this series of episodes.
2: That's the point of contention. But notice these guys aren't hitting the point of contention.
0: Well, that's actually a point of contention, Leighton. That's one you love to dwell on, but that's not the point of contention that we were addressing here. We were addressing the initial state of fallen man, which, deril- which deals directly with how they are born. What does it mean to be separated from God, corrupt, fallen, if that doesn't mean... That you're guilty of sin and this is what i don't recall ever hearing him explain in this response is how you can be born innocent and yet be born corrupt he he has to use the word because the bible teaches it right but he doesn't explain what it actually means to be born corrupt
2: they're trying to they're erecting a straw man and how are they erecting the straw man oh these these provisions over there they just think sin's just this namby-pamby faux faux pas social faux pas you know and we're inherently good that's, that's really what they're saying
0: well, and we're about to get into you know, one of the examples I've heard Leighton use, uh, which shows that v- that very concept that sin is just a mistake. It's not an actual act, uh, willful act of rebellion, right? I know Leighton has said that, but he's also given, this is where people like me get these these understandings and these impressions from, is his own sorts of examples, which we're about to get to.
2: And it's not what we say. So what are they doing? They're re- they're not still manning their opponent. They're straw manning their opponent.
0: No, we're using your own statement of faith, right? which I just said teaches that you're born innocent and yet you want to say that that doesn't mean you're born good or righteous, but that actually means you're born corrupt. So you're born innocently corrupt. And I want you to explain that. Don't just say it to sound biblical. I want you to explain
2: it. It's easy to burn down a straw man. It's easy to kick out a straw man. And so
0: it's not a straw man when we're using your own statement of faith
2: to, to get respect. What you have to do is paint the view in the best possible light. Paint it as with our actual words.
0: And that's what I just did with your statement of faith, right? I painted it with your words. You're saying we're born corrupt, but we're also not guilty. I want you to explain that.
2: Use our actual words and then say, okay, he says this. We would say this in contrast versus painting it as if I would agree with that we're inherently good and that there's no corrupt nature and there's no, uh, you know.
0: Okay, so you, you don't think we're inherently good. You think that there's a corrupt nature, and yet you also think that we're born innocent. So, again, for the 10th time now, that is up to you to explain. You don't just get to say it and say, and say that you're off limits now, and we can't actually criticize what's going on here. You need to be able to explain these things.
2: The original sin of Adam didn't affect us at all, and we're just all basically good people, and everybody, you know, hunky-dory, and separation from God, no big deal, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay? I'm, I'm not going to take your, your critique of us very seriously if you're not going to take my view very seriously.
0: Layton, again... You're saying that you're, you actually think that the fall, that the sin of Adam did have an effect on us, yet your statement of faith says that you deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will. It, you deny that the sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will. So what quote unquote effect did it actually have on us? How, how am I strawmanning you when I'm just reading your own statement of faith? Nor did Adam's sin render any person guilty. So what effect did it have? Again, you just want to say it to sound biblical, but you, you, you never
2: explain what you mean. And so I'm just saying, do better. You know, Try to actually represent us for ourselves. This is one of the reasons, guys, I will play clips of actual Calvinist verbiage when I bring critique, because I want you to hear their actual words. So if you actually played Leighton Flowers or a leading traditionalist...
0: Or read your statement of faith?
2: Or a provisionist scholar saying something and then critiquing their actual language...
0: And again, I'm critiquing your language that you, ju- you just said with your with your words. You said we're born, your statement of faith says you're born innocent, and yet you say we're born corrupt and, I guess, not good, right? You don't want to say we're born good, so I guess we're born not good, but we're also innocent. You need to explain that. And then you also need to explain how you can in any way say that Adam's sin had an effect on you, quote-unquote, an effect on you, when your statement of faith denies every relevant effect that is that is up for the discussion, in other words, the fallen condition of man re, with regards to their will, which your your statement of faith says Adam's sin did not result in the incapacitation of any man's free will and that it did not render them any any person guilty. so you want to say one thing because it sounds biblical, but then you also want to say another thing, such as in your statement of faith, which is in most people's view a direct contradiction, and without your explanation, which you fail to give in this response, unfortunately. We, we have nothing to go with here. And I really did find it a little interesting that um, he's asking me, of all people, to play his words for himself when the vast majority of my podcast so far has been line-by-line responses to Leighton's own words, right? This just happened to be a special case uh, where we're going through uh, the statement of faith, of provisionism, of which you are the, most, the foremost spokesperson. The statement of faith is obviously addressing um, far more foundational concepts than you know, your typical Leighton Flowers episode ranting against Calvinism is, right? It's getting to, to the, the, the bare bones issues. And so, you know, if, if, you wanna, if you want people to hear you for yourself, so to speak, uh, what better opportunity for that to occur than for you to have answered our specific questions with your own precise words. But unfortunately, most of the time, your answers were very vague and oftentimes weren't even addressing the specific questions that we were asking. Says that we affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined towards sin. So it's almost like they, they want to recognize that, yeah, we're, we are born in the line of Adam and that's there's something going on there. Right. Okay. There's something going on there. And that's what I'm getting at. What is that something? And you'll never hear Leighton explain that. Their statement of faith doesn't explain it. It's just, it's the vagueness of provisionism. But again, there, here's a statement that we can affirm, but not in the same way, right? We, we believe that we are inclined towards sin and only sin, right? Um, so it, all, it sounds almost like something a Calvinist would say, but well, we have to ask further questions. We obviously don't mean the same thing. Uh, we believe that we, our hearts are inclined towards sin, um, and we will only ever sin until those inclinations are actually changed. And the, the, the provisionist seems to claim that inclined towards sin simply means that we will eventually sin, because remember, they don't believe that you're born guilty of Adam's sin. You're born an innocent person. And then, but they're forced to admit because... And notice, Leighton is not going to deny what I just said. Everybody has sinned. Leighton does believe that people are born innocent. Sinned, right, right. That we will all eventually at some point sin which is going to bring up an important point to me here but but this is also important because it's not that we're always sinning even after we sin the quote-unquote first time whenever that is that magical time point in time right. but it's not that we're always sinning, um and th- this just supports the idea that well sin in this view just seems to be like well we mess up every now and then right instead of it being something that is is uh, always resulting in sin it's just well we're inherently good and sometimes we mess up and again that reinforces my point of the watered-down view of sin in Leighton's view, because Leighton does actually believe that unsaved, unregenerate people can do actual good, okay? They can do actual good. They're not 100% sinning 100% of the time. That's a horrible Calvinist total depravity view, right? That man is only ever sinning in their fallen state. Leighton, as far as I know, rejects that and says that man is actually capable of moral good in their fallen state. Now, uh, To be fair to Leighton, not more, not any moral good that would ever merit, right? Any sort of salvation, right? You got to be fair to Leighton on that point. But still, the idea that man is capable in their fallen state of doing anything morally good is by definition going to be a more watered down view of the fallen sinful state of man than a view which says that man in the fallen state is only ever sinning. That is a far more serious view of sin. That's as serious as you can get. Only ever sinning in the fallen state.
2: So I just would like a clear... So if you could find a statement where any provisionist, myself included, anybody, ever says we're inherently good, sometimes we just mess up. then I would say, oh, this this is a good critique of us.
0: Okay. Number one, I just read your statement of faith that says that, sure, we're born corrupt, but that we're also born innocent. So how can you... How are you born corrupt and in need of a savior if you believe that people are born innocent? Wouldn't they only need a savior from their sin once they've sinned, right? Can you explain that? So again, you think I'm strawmaning you when I when I understand being born innocent to be being born good? That's a strawman. I'm sorry. I apologize wholeheartedly, but you need to do some explaining, right? Because I think that a lot of people can come away thinking um, what I'm thinking that to be born innocent is to be born good. If 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 innocent isn't good, what is it? Is it bad? And then what is bad? Can't be sinful because they haven't sinned yet. This is just a mess of a view. I'm sorry. Is, is there some sort of neutral state? Are we born into a neutral state? You're not, you're not good and you're not bad, but you're just somewhere in the middle. Where does the Bible ever talk about that? Morally neutral, right? I thought it was either you're for Christ or you're against him. I thought it was either slaves to righteousness or slaves to unrighteousness. Where is this neutral state if you're going to try to adopt a neutral state? And this is the problem. That you, th- this is the result When you have a a view like provisionism, which doesn't have a a robust explanation and handling of the fallen state of man, it's so watered down that they're they're still saying a bunch of things that sound really close to what we all know to be biblical, right? Lots of biblical phrases there. But when you ask these critical questions, you
2: can pick it apart.
0: And then the idea of sin being no, quote unquote, no big deal as a misrepresentation. Well, again, we're going to get to that in a minute.
2: But this is not what we believe. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a straw man fallacy. And so um, I, I would appreciate if Colin would actually use our words versus inserting his own words into our, our view.
0: All right, Leighton, and I'm saying this nicely, right? I appreciate you've interacted with me before, and I hope that that can continue. But I want you to understand that I'm not intentionally misrepresenting or straw manning you. The words in your statement of faith and the ways and the examples that you give in your episodes, and we're seeing this all come out in this response – it puts forth particular impressions, okay? And so the only way, this is what I'm getting at here, the only way that we can clear these things up is if you do some explaining. You've got a lot of explaining to do, and so far you haven't done it. You've, you're going to do this a lot in this response. You're going to accuse us of straw man, and if only we had done a Google search, and I've addressed this over here and that over there. You had the perfect opportunity in this response to address it head on and yet so much of the time you're going to be deflecting unfortunately
2: and saying this is what we're critiquing and 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 I'm, i'm showing you substantive differences between what you're saying and what we actually believe because we do believe a person is dead depraved corrupt we just don't believe that therefore they can't recognize that fact and humbly confess that fact in light of the law and the gospel sent to us by god he's the initiator
0: and again he's on to the after the fact um responding to the gospel, which certainly, certainly important, certainly part of the picture, but listen to this again. Because
2: we do believe a person is dead, depraved, corrupt.
0: How is an innocent person who has not yet sinned dead, depraved, and corrupt? You claim it, but you don't explain it. You don't explain the relationship between those two things. Because if an innocent person who has not yet sinned can be dead, depraved, and corrupt, then what's the difference between that and someone who has sinned? who is dead, depraved, and corrupt. You see the importance there and how you're not explaining anything. You're you're just saying, well, we say these things and we're not saying what you're saying. So you're strawmanning and misrepresenting, but you're not actually explaining your view to the point to where our our quote-unquote misrepresentation is exposed as such. So far, it's just your claim. Well, we're misrepresenting you, but as far as I can tell... Your, your statement of faith, your view of provisionism has some serious logical contradictions in it. And in fact, just recently on Twitter, um, I uh, asked uh, Leighton Flowers on uh, one of his posts here. I'd like to read this. He says, now listen to this wording, right? All people are sinners who are enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, enemies of God. But our gracious God provides for enslaved, spiritually dead enemies so that they may be set free, made alive and reconciled so as to be saved. But listen to that first part. All people are sinners who are enslaved to sin, spiritually dead enemies of God, etc. Right? So all this language about being enemies of God, spiritually dead, separated from God, enslaved to sin, perhaps even corrupt. right? He's saying that all people are that way. Now, I immediately ask, and he's going to clarify, which is fine, no problem with clarifying things, but I immediately say, can you explain how someone is born innocent, in your view, and yet also say that they are enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, and enemies of God? Why does someone who has not yet sinned need to be, quote-unquote, set free, reconciled, made alive, and saved? And Leighton responds with, sounds like you're asking about children who have not yet reached an age that they can understand good from evil, involitionally choose to sin i've discussed this here if you're interested he also says people are born outside the garden and fellowship with god they aren't perfect but they also they also aren't held guilty for the sins of their parents according to scripture now i'm going to address this topic as you know in, in, along those specific lines eventually but notice i was simply asking for justification from his own view but what he said wasn't an answer but he basically just repeated my what led to my question in the first place. My question says, "Can you explain how someone is born innocent in your view?" In other words, I know you believe that there's an age accountability, Layton. I know you think that people are born innocent, and yet you also want to say that they're somehow s- separated from fellowship with God, etc. So why does someone in that state of innocency need to be set free, reconciled, made alive, and saved, etc. All right, so you're just With those two things, you're restating what led to my... So so I, I ask, how does that answer my question at all? All you did was restate what leads to my question. If what you just said is true, in other words, let's grant it. Let's pretend there is an age of accountability in play. Let's pretend that people are born outside the garden, they're separated from fellowship with God, and they're not perfect, and that they're not held guilty for the sins of their parents. So they're innocent. How is an innocent person, continuing my tweet, how is an innocent person enslaved to sin spiritually dead and enemies of God and why do they need to be set free you know I basically repeated the question and this is where Leighton finally clarifies it says I was addressing those who were able to give an account for their sins not children that's why I linked you to the article about age of accountability I also sent the text cl- explaining very clearly that God does not hold children accountable to which I immediately say and this is the point then you need to change the phrase all people in your original tweet don't you because his original tweets said all people are sinners who are enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, etc. It didn't say all people who have sinned are X, Y, and Z. It just said all people are sinners who X, Y, and Z. There's a, there's a huge difference there and words are important. And this is my point, right? That's a very biblical thing to say. And it sounds wonderful. And it sounds like something we should all be on board with. But Leighton Flowers' view, when you dig a little deeper since he doesn't come right out and say it all the time, has a very large chunk of humanity that has lived and died in an innocent state. Apparently, without a need for a savior, right? Now, if that's a misrepresentation, if you think they did need a savior, then again, we're waiting for you to explain how an innocent person who has not yet sinned needs to be saved from their sin. How does an innocent person who has not yet sinned against God need to be reconciled to God, Right? You need to explain this if you're going to say that all these things are somehow true at the same time. So finally, Leighton says, you may not be intending to do so, but you seem to be nitpicking the point of the post. To which I said, I'm just asking simple questions. You've cleared it all up. Thanks for the, taking the time to do so. So what this shows is notice Leighton fully affirms that they that people are born innocent, not guilty of their parents sins, and that there is an age of accountability, right, where people go a certain period of time. Before they become, as their statement of faith would say, capable of moral action. This is going to become really important as we continue on through this series of episodes and responses. I just, I really don't want people to get distracted with Leighton talking about, well, yeah, we need a savior and we're all sinners. And yeah, yeah, right. We get all that. We are specifically addressing the fallen state that people are born into. We're talking about that state of existence when we're asking these questions that we're asking. Clear. I don't know if you've heard them say it or if you've seen a reference that are we born with an actual sinful nature and what does that really mean? All right, so there I am. This is part of what he's responding to. I asked it there, right then and there, and yet we never got an answer to that question.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of this... Adam Harwood,
2: um, in his book, talks about having the sin nature and what that can mean.
0: (laughs) What that can mean. Now, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but Leighton does this a lot, okay? He does this all the time when he is faced with a serious question about what he supposedly believes, Leighton Flowers. He'll point and say, oh, well, well, this person says that, and these guys say that, and there's all these views out there, and there's just, just take your pick, I guess. Leighton, we want to know what you believe, okay? So here you're quoting a guy that wrote some book. That's great. What did he say that you agreed with, that you would adopt as your own and say, yes, this is what is the true position? I don't want to know about possibilities, right? How weak would that be? I mean, here I am, Consistent Calvinism Podcast, most of my episodes have focused on Layton. If I just fired up Layton's episodes, and every time Layton made an argument or asked a question, I said, well, you know, Layton, um, this guy, this Calvinist over here said that, but then this Calvinist over here said that, or maybe it's not even a Calvinist, right? Maybe somebody said this over here or that over there. Would you, would you consider that answering your arguments or your questions? You wouldn't take that seriously at all. And yet you do that on a regular basis, and you did it several times in this response. You're not answering our question.
2: Now, it can be interpreted to mean sin nature, meaning that you have a nature that can only sin every single time. And I think that actually undermines sin.
0: Okay. So that's not your view. What is your view? What does it mean to have a sinful nature? You're distracting right now.
2: If you're just talking about everybody just always sins, no matter what they're always doing, you're undermining sin. It's almost like when everybody... No,
0: no. (laughs) I couldn't believe when I heard that. As I said a couple minutes ago, a view which has man only ever sinning is the this most serious, worst possible view of sin you can have in terms of, of seriousness of the fallen condition, right? If to be born in sin, to have a sinful nature, means that you are only ever, you, you love your sin and you hate God and you only ever want to sin, that is as bad, as serious of a view of sin as you can have. A view which has anything less than that, a view of the fallen sinful nature of man being, well, they sin a lot, but sometimes they can do what's good, you have, that is what is undermining sin. Because that is starting to veer into the, well, sin's just a mistake every now and then type of view, which Leighton says he doesn't believe. So again, I want to hear what Leighton believes, but he's not really doing a very good job of explaining it. He
2: accuses everybody of being a racist. You make racism not that important anymore because everybody's just a racist all the time. Well, that's what you're doing with sin.
0: Well, I mean, that's... That doesn't take away from the seriousness of racism. If they are actually racist, it's a, it's a problem, and it's horrible, and I, I, I don't understand his point here. It's, it's really bizarre. If someone is always a racist, they're always a racist, and that's terrible all the time. Them them being a, a racist more doesn't make racism less bad. I, I, I don't get what he's... I, this one's over my head.
2: Oh, everybody's just always sinning. You, you've undermined sin. Sin is-
0: the exact opposite.
2: Sin is willful rebellion against God.
0: Now, I, I love when he, when he said that, right? Because I agree. Sin is willful rebellion against God. And yet, we're gonna get, I keep saying we're going to get to it because I forget when you do these responses, they're so much longer than you think. We're getting to the point where I point out one of the many analogies of Leighton, which does paint sin as just a mistake. It is not a willful act of rebellion in many of these analogies. So, I want to be fair. I'm glad Leighton sees sin that way but Leighton your view does not account for sin in that way as we're gonna see in many of your examples
2: and you can read the article at our website um, the age of accountability where it actually talks through these things from the scripture as to why God and how God holds men accountable even talks about what Jesus says
0: what so that that's great age of accountability we'll get there sometime what does that have to do with your view of what it means for man to be a fallen sinner what does it mean for man to have a corrupt nature to be born with a sinful corrupt nature if they're born innocent and they haven't sinned yet. What does that mean? And again, you're just distracting. You're not explaining.
2: Well, if you had knowledge, if you, did, if you were you remained in ignorance, you wouldn't have been guilty, but because you claim to know these things, your guilt remains upon you. And there's other passages of Scripture which are clear didactic texts from Jesus' word own mouth talking about uh, people's guilt and why they're guilty and why God sees them as accountable and guilty. Um, and, and these things oftentimes don't even get into the discussion because the Calvinists, again, in my estimation, many times are reading their system or their premise into these texts. Uh, versus, uh,
0: and again, we can talk about that all another day. What did any of that have to do with answering how you view what, what does it mean for man to have a sinful nature? Y- you didn't answer the question at all.
1: You know, my question is, okay, but I, I, have, I have all kinds of inclinations that, that I can overcome. So, oh. so, you know, even if I'm inclined towards sin, surely, I mean, at least there's hypothetical perfectionism. Right, right.
0: right. Like, this like, is the, like it it, should, the exact next point that I was going to get into. So this is a very important point from Tyler, and that is that if... What people like Layton are saying is true, that you're born innocent, you haven't sinned yet, and you have free will, then what should be true, or possible at least, hypothetically possible, is the idea of sinless perfectionism, right? If your nature is not determinative of your choices, and you being born with a sinful nature does not determine that you will sin, then hypothetically speaking, you should be able to never sin. You should be able to always choose what is Right?
1: Yeah, but but so so I mean that seems to be possible because um, it doesn't it doesn't seem by by um, by their statement of faith or what I've heard before that there that there is something um, irreparably dead about your nature, right? They, they they very very strongly want to downplay the death uh, motif in in the New Testament. This is why they say, well, you know, dead in sin and sin trespasses. It doesn't mean dead like your dead corpse, like you know Ezekiel thirty one. Uh, uh-huh. it, it means dead like like it, because it's a parable. Uh, it's like the prodigal son where the son was de- quote unquote dead to the father. The son wasn't actually dead. Um, and so they want, to rely on, on, but they want to rely on those types of, of parables, but in doing so...
0: And I explained a little earlier, again, don't forget the difference between physical death, contrasting that with spiritual
1: death, right? It really does seem to, for them to think that, well, Dennis, deadness...
2: Did I rely upon that parable earlier when I gave a description of the fact that those who are dead need new life, and how do they get new life according to the scripture? And I quoted to use two texts of scripture, one from Jesus' own mouth.
0: Layton, you mentioning that people are dead and need new life does not explain what it means to be dead in the first place. And that is what Tyler and I are asking you right here. And again, you fail to answer. What does it mean to be born spiritually dead? You say it, but you don't explain it. Okay? That is precisely what we're getting at.
2: You refuse to come to me so that you may have life, which strongly implies that the way that they get new life is by coming to him.
0: Nothing to do with what it means to be spiritually dead.
2: Not that they're given new life so as to come, but that they come so as to get new life again i don't need to go to the prodigal son's parable i can because it's a good parable to illustrate how somebody can be in the far off country lost now found dead now alive as to illustrate the idiom of deadness as we see with the church of sardis you have a reputation of being alive jesus says to the church of sardis but you're dead wake up and renew what remains does dead mean moral incapacity for them to hear his warning and respond positively of course not He's speaking to the church but he uses the dead idiom to describe them
0: now so he's speaking to a church in that context And yet, why are you assuming that deadness, quote unquote, is always going to be used in in the identical way, in identical ways, I should say, in scripture? That's what you seem to be assuming there. Because you're using the idea of deadness with relationship to a church to be identical with the idea of deadness for fallen sinners, to be dead in sin. Um, Really? I mean, does that mean that when we go from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ, that, that we can fall away and become dead in sin all over again? If you're being consistent of your usage of that concept of deadness with relationship to the church in that contextual passage then you'd have to say yes right but I, I would think you would say no because again we're talking we're using the idea of deadness in different ways in different parts of scripture
2: so does dead mean they can't respond no dead means they are distant because of their immorality they have moved out of fellowship with God and they're doing their own thing they're living lukewarm lives they're out there in the, the sinful carnal flesh and therefore they're not pleasing God they need to draw near so as to be alive in him and to live with fellowship with him. That's the illustrations being used with the Church of Sardis. Why, why wouldn't that be consistent throughout the scripture? Why assume that deadness means the moral incapacity to respond to God's life-giving truth unless you have a strong didactic biblical text telling you that? I don't see it.
0: And again, you don't need to have word-for-word word phrases to, to fulfill the demands of conceptual teachings. And we just we already went through Romans 8. Which says that the mind that is set on the flesh, which is obviously referring to spiritually dead people, because verse nine says, "If you're according to the spirit, you're not according to the flesh." So it's referring to spiritually dead people, and it says that the result of that state is that they cannot please God, they cannot submit to His law, cannot. So yes, moral inability is directly tied to the idea of being dead in sin, right? So for you to for you to take the idea of a church being uh, spoken of as dead and just start start mixing these, these words, interchanging these words, and, and s- pretending like they're identical, I think demonstrates some serious issues.
1: And this is kind of a, it's almost like a positional thing, rather than, uh, rather than nature thing.
0: And that is precisely how Leighton just laid out his view on spiritual death. It is more of a positional thing than a nature thing. He said, well, you're spiritually dead, you're separated, and you need to draw near to God to be made alive. Right, it's based on your position rather than the actual nature of your heart, which is giving birth to your actions. Yeah, and I've noticed this. This is another thing. I spent... uh several episodes not exclusively but throughout those episodes I, in my podcast really trying to explain that uh, spiritual you can't just conflate physical death and spiritual death right physical death means no physical activity so you've got physical activity versus no activity at all that's spiritual death is not spiritual activity versus no spiritual activity at all when you're talking about spiritual life and spiritual death it's all activity it's just now shifted from spiritually bad stuff to spiritually good stuff and that's a very important key to understanding that a lot of calvinists will talk about how you're dead in sin and um I, i've heard you know that the 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 non-calvinists will say well you're you're you fell in the hole and you need somebody to help you out, or whatever. And the Calvinist will come on and say, no, 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 you're dead at the bottom of the hole. And you need to be resurrected and carried out. Um, and and but if they don't properly explain that you're not actually, I don't really like that example because you're not dead at the bottom of the hole. You're 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 sinning. You're actively like like even the demons. They're spiritually dead, but they're very active. It's just right. all bad stuff. Right. So you're at the bottom of the hole, but that's because you jumped in. You wanted to jump in, and now you're loving living life,
2: right? Okay. And so why did you jump in? And you want to jump in? Were you born in the hole by nature? According to the divine decree.
0: See, and he's deflecting once again onto the ultimate God did it. Yes, Layton. ultimately God did it.
2: In the bottom of the hole, digging down, is that what God decreed for you to be?
0: But see, we're not addressing, you know, we we've stated our system or aspects of our system, sure. But what the point of this episode is and what should have been your response was that we're addressing your system. right? And that was one of the unfortunate repetitions in your responses is that rather than defending your position and clearly explaining your views... And answering our questions, you spent most of your time just basically saying, well, look how absurd Calvinism is. And then you just, I guess you hope people come away thinking, well, if that's the case, um, I guess I'll go with provisionism. You know, whatever provisionism happens to be, at at least it's not Calvinism. So, again, the critical concept here, what does it mean to be dead in sin? separated from god you say it you say well we are dead in sin and we are separated from god and we need to be reconciled and we have to draw near to him and we have to believe and all that stuff yeah okay everybody can say that but what is the relationship what is the consequence of being dead in sin as it pertains to the actions of the creature what is the relationship between the sin of the creature sinful actions and that fallen sinful nature you have to establish a connection there. The Calvinist does that, right? We do that very clearly. But you haven't done that. You've just said, yeah, people sin, and yeah, they have a sinful nature, but you haven't addressed what the connection is, because your view doesn't seem to have a very serious connection, right? Because again, you believe people who are dead in sin can already do spiritually good things.
2: So you got to state that a part of this this whole scenario with your analogy. If you want to do analogies, which I'm fine with, but if you're going to use that analogy, let's be consistent with analogy. You're born at the bottom of the hole because of what Adam did, and you're born hating God and digging to get away from him because God created you to be that way instead of you actually willfully choosing to go into that hole and to try to get away from God when you could have done otherwise. That, that's the problem with your system.
0: Well, both of those things are true. You see it as either or, but I've continually pointed out that it's not. God, has, God is the ultimate determiner of all things, yes, and yet The way the all things play out includes our willful rebellion and digging deeper into the hole, right? Both of those things are true. And that little could do otherwise at the end there, again, you got to talk about what you mean when you say could do otherwise. Nobody can say you could have ultimately done otherwise. Nobody can say that. I will not allow you to get away with thinking that you are able to say that you could have ultimately done otherwise. You can't. God creates you in a specific way and he knows that if I create this person at this time to these parents with this genetics and on and on and on, God is in control of all those things. God is the one who makes you who and what you are, creates you when and where he does. God takes that action knowing the future results, knowing that you will only ever hate him and go to hell. You also have people being created unable to ultimately do otherwise. I will always repeat that point and not allow you to uh, pretend like it doesn't apply to you.
2: Yeah, you keep digging. You keep digging. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you keep digging. Why? Because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed before you were ever born that you would keep digging and you would hate Him. Just say it all. If you
0: Ultimately, why? Right? There's all there's all sorts of storyline level reasons or answers to the why question as well, which you once again ignore.
2: If you just say it all. I don't have to refute anything anymore. I can stop doing the show if Calvinists would just be really clear with what they mean by what they're saying. Then I wouldn't have to do the show anymore.
0: And why don't you? I pointed this out again. I have I have to point it out again. Did it in the last episode. I'm going to do it again. Why don't you say it all, Leighton? Why don't you say it all? Why don't you say that ultimately the reason someone hates God their entire life and ends up in hell is because God created them in that specific way, knowing that they would. And he could have created them differently. God could have created them in a different time, in a different place, different genetics, different parents, different this, different that, in such a way that their life would have resulted in them believing and ending up in heaven. Are you going to deny that God could have done that? I don't think you would. And so what do you have? You have God being an ultimate control, being the ultimate determiner of the way in which someone exists. And therefore, you also have God being the ultimate determiner of all these sorts of things. So why don't you say it all? Why do you always leave that out? Why do you always leave the God-determined-everything-about-how-you-would-be-created part? Is it maybe because when you point that out, your entire position collapses and all your arguments against Calvinism collapse along with it? All right, guys, and with that said, I think I'm going to try to wrap this one up here at the hour-long mark. Like I said, I want to try to keep each of these around about an hour. Looking forward, I had anticipated about four episodes for this series, but it's looking like a little bit longer than that. It's probably going to be closer to six episodes. Part of the next episode is already recorded. I just need to finish that one out, so hopefully the next episode will be out within a week or two. If you found this uh, beneficial, please spread it around. You can subscribe to Consistent Calvinism on YouTube and all your favorite podcasting apps, and you can follow the Twitter at the letter C, Calvinism, at Calvinism. A lot of fun stuff there as well. You guys take it easy and remember to stay consistent.